Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. This episode is proudly sponsored by Vivino, the world's largest online wine marketplace. The Vivino app makes it easy to choose wine. Enjoy expert team support, door-to-door delivery, and honest wine reviews to help you choose the perfect wine for every occasion. Vivino, download the app on Apple or Android and discover an easier way to choose wine. Hello, this is Steve Ray. And I want to welcome you to the Wine to Wine 2021 Clubhouse Marathon, produced in collaboration with the UK Wine Show, Interpreting Wine, and my company, Bevology Inc. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Amy Gross of Wine for Me. Amy's been working on a, on a wine app for a number of years. She's had a, a number of major companies, including IBM, supporting what she's been doing. And it has evolved uh, over time. And I think, you know, contemporary with all the major changes that are happening around the world, obviously, for COVID. So later today, I'm giving a presentation on e-commerce. Earlier today, Amy gave a, gave a presentation to the group on her thing. So why don't you give us a, a nickel summary of what your thing's all about, and then uh, we can start picking it apart. Basically, what we do is use flavor um, to help people find wine. So I worked with sensory scientists from your alma mater, Cornell University, and winemakers, data scientists, and such to come up with a way to analyze wines based on flavor principles using tasting, not chemistry, and then an accompanying recommendation engine with that. Now, once when we started launching this, people said to me, digital menus. So it's been quite a journey, but we started with um, an iPhone app and we've evolved from there to technology used in tasting rooms and on websites, again, just to help people find the flavors that they like. We wanted to kind of meet novice and casual wine drinkers where they were and finding a, a great way to find new wines. Okay, so that raises the, 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 the elephant in the room question is we've got e-commerce now, which is, has grown dramatically during COVID. The numbers I've seen is from e-commerce of wine in the United States, and including domestic wineries to consumer shipping. Was it about 2% before COVID? It went up to about 4 to 8% during COVID. It's projected to be up to 12% within a year and maybe 20% and $20 billion uh, by 2024. The challenge is people have changed the way they do shopping. They're no longer exclusively in one particular channel. They don't just go into a store. And even if they do go into a store, they'll often take a photograph and using label recognition technology to access more information on the wine through tools such as Vivino. We had Heine Zacharias here before. I think the big bugaboo I keep finding is the lexicon, the jargon, the language that people in the wine industry use, (laughs) and then the the language that is used by people who think that's the language you should be using. And I use the metaphor of it's like fried gooseberries. Well, I've never had a regular (laughs) gooseberry. And to make wine, it's almost off-putting and so on. So what you're trying to do, and I think all the people that we're talking to at this conference today are all trying different versions of that, is to make wine more user-friendly. 
or accessible? Accessible. I would say accessible. And yeah, vocabulary was definitely a challenge. And especially because we started working with sensory scientists and winemakers who wanted to analyze 70 plus characteristics and get so granular that we had to say, you know what, let's go back to what the sensory scientists have to say as to what things are really important, what we should measure. But then what you said, how do we communicate that? So we went back and we have a lot of options that our users can select to indicate the flavors that they like. After testing um, at wineries in the Finger Lakes, we found that the fewer things, the better. So we start with sweet to dry, full bodied, light bodied, long finish, short finish, those sorts of things that are easier to understand. People still body is a question that a lot of people struggle with. And so we try to explain, you know, using the milk analogy, skim milk to to whole milk to cream. Um, And sometimes people get that and sometimes they don't. Another one though, that's a real challenge is sweet to dry because a lot of people will say they like dry when in actuality, they like a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of sugar in their wine. And one of the things I've heard people say, Americans have two flavor preferences, crunchy and sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you're raising our kids on mac and cheese, you know. But, but, But the issue with sweet is it's a relative term. And I think when we talk about wine, there's also a point of confusion. A lot of people misconstrue fruit for sweet. And so once again, it has to do with the definitions and what people are comfortable with. So one of the things you guys are using, it's this, you called it a slider. Basically, it's a toggle, like on, a, on an audio board or something, from one side to the other. It's a continuum, and within there, you can describe sweetness. We might talk about something as having four grams of residual sugar per liter, which would speak to us and tell us what we're expecting with that. Well, actually, it doesn't really tell you what you're expecting with that, because what we're finding is something might have a definite amount of sugar, but that's not what your flavor and taste buds are going to perceive. Why is that? It's it's because all the other ingredients and all the other characteristics of the wine can make something with two grams of residual sugar taste one way or taste another way. Because all the other things you really need to get, and I'm going to start using my hands here. This is the, the Italian part of the podcast, I think. I don't think people are going to say it. Yeah, <laughs> um, Every aspect of what you're tasting and what you're experiencing comes in to make a difference. So you really have to get the holistic analysis of the wine in order to help. Now, that's a really big fancy word, but what we have found is that regular consumers are able to use our sliders and end up with the wines that they want. My goal for my technology, quite frankly, is not for the aficionado. It's not for the connoisseur. It's for the person and the people that want to have a lovely bottle of wine that they're going to enjoy and they don't want to study. They don't They don't know what regions they like and quite frankly, they don't care what kind of grape it is. They may not know the difference between a grape or a region, but they have an idea of what they like or they can pull up another wine and look at its flavor characteristics and then go in. Um, at one of the wineries we were working with, they would serve, this was of course pre-COVID, they would serve a welcome wine and then show you the flavor profile of that wine to kind of give people an idea of how then to use the sliders. And then people would use the sliders and get a custom flight. Okay. And I think one of the early vineyards wineries that you were using was Fox Run Vineyards. Yes. Run by Scott Osborne, who's a good friend, I think, of both of us for a long time. And, and 
I think New York State, uh, certainly the Finger Lakes have been leaders in that because even stemming from Riesling, not that anybody <laughs> in Italy really is, well, true, there's a lot of Riesling up in Zutirol. There's this misconception that Riesling is sweet because when my generation grew up, we drank things like leapfrog milk and um, the Bishop of Riesling, and it was, it was very sweet. Most of the Riesling wines coming out of Germany now that are popular in Germany are at best off-dried, mm -hmm. but mostly bone-dried. Uh, but there's this conception in the U.S., even though it's maybe three generations removed from people ever having tasted one of these old wines, that it's sweet. And my personal feeling, because Riesling is one of my favorite varietals, is that's what's holding Riesling back. People don't understand it, and the response we always get is sweet. Then I go into the lecture of, well, let me explain sweet to you. And if, if I preface that by saying, do you want to hear the lecture? <laughs> and let me explain sweet. The answer is no. No, thank you. <laughs> Can you just pour me a glass? Exactly. But you bring up you bring up something that it's when people have a perception or when they have no knowledge. And I think that you know we see Italian wine doing very well in the U.S., but yet there are so many grapes that I think that people are still a little intimidated to try something new. And so I feel like Italian wines could do even better if people were discovering these wines based on flavor and not so intimidated by what what is the grape? What is that the grape? Is that the region? How do I pronounce it? I don't know what I'm ordering. The more tools that you can give a wine casual person, a wine curious person to find a new wine they're going to enjoy, the more opportunities you're giving them to try your wine. Okay, I agree with that in principle. I think the question on the table, which is what you're working for, is this is is it a commercially acceptable way and functional way for people to learn about it? So I'll put you on the spot and ask you a hard question. Okay. Okay, there's a line I presume you're familiar with Sagrantino de Montefalco, which is extremely tannic, more tannic than it's almost as tannic as Tanat from Uruguay. Okay. Right? People don't have a really good way to describe tannin. We tannin, we talk about it as a tooth coating or grippy or those kinds of things. But in the case of Sagrantino, it's the first and in many cases the only thing you're going to do. It's like licorice. It's so overwhelming. How would you describe that wine to somebody else so that they're prepared to get kicked in the teeth with um, a piece of wood? Well, I actually have not tasted that wine that I can recall right back to back. But because we have so many other characteristics... There's got to be something going on with the other things that are there. Of course. Um, another thing that we do whenever we have, we haven't used this as much, but we can build a flavor profile. So as a user comes back and does things more and more frequently, once we start saving those preferences, we can start making recommendations without even moving the sliders. Now, this is obviously for, in, in, the, in the technique that they've developed an account, they're coming back, they're using the application and wherever it's being deployed, and whether it's an account with a winery, account with a retailer, account with a bar or restaurant. And then we can start making suggestions. And we're actually analyzing the wines based on many more things than what you see in the application. But dumbing it down enough so that people just say, oh, here's an easy, I have three things that I have to touch. You may want to be able to adjust it with 10 things, but they don't have to see it. It's behind a green curtain. Exactly. So we, whenever you first open up, you've got four from which to choose, any of which you can turn off or on, but four are on. And then there are an additional six. 
that you can also turn on, which we found that people would rather turn things on than turn them off. Tannin is not one of them. So you are, of course, asking me that. Because it's that not a commonly question. used term by right. consumers to define a water. Right, right. So we actually put little tidbits of our tannin evaluation in other things. So you'll find it kind of hidden in other things. Um, we find that some people think, even though it's not accurate, that tannins can have something to do with acid. And so we use a little bit of our tannin profiling in acid because we found that consumers can understand that. And so as a wine professional, you're thinking, no, it's got to be completely on acid. Well, not completely on acid. Um, (laughs) But what we're finding is consumers are using these words and we want to relate with the consumer. And so we have a little bit of that in that. But it would it would call on the other characteristics as well to make the to make the call for that first recommendation. So in terms of user friendliness, and this is one of the things you talked about in the presentation this morning, is native apps versus app apps. Can you touch on that? Yeah. Okay. So a native app is an app that you download from an app store, whether that be Google Play or whether that be the Apple App Store. And so those are apps that live on your phone. And so there was a real trend whenever the App Store launched and the iPhone launched that every winery felt like, oh, I have to have my own app and I'm going to be behind the digital times if I don't build one. But that was a very expensive notion. Well, so if you didn't build one, good for you. Because what we're finding now is people aren't really using those native apps so much. We are using digital, we are using mobile, but not so much the apps. Whenever the app stores were launched, mobile browsing was really hard. It was very difficult to do. It was slow. It was clunky. The design was bad. Now, whenever people are designing web applications and even websites, they're building them so that they're mobile responsive and our mobile data travels so much more quickly. So it's a very different experience now than it was in 2007 when the iPhone came out and then later that year whenever the App Store was launched. So people are downloading apps, kind of, but even when they're downloading them, they may or may not use them. But one thing people have learned through COVID is the you know, how to access a digital menu. And so the QR code, which you know we thought was never going to take off, is now extremely popular. And so whenever you're using you know, your scanner or your, your, your camera, to go on a QR code, you're actually opening a web app, which is a mobile responsive application. And I would like to encourage wineries and retailers to not necessarily work so hard on that native app, but on the web app. Because if a winery has their information on a web app, they can track it better, who's going to that site, how long they're staying, and they can track it with something so simple as Google Analytics. Yes, if you want to get more detailed, you can, but let's, you know, wineries are in the business to make delicious wine and get it to the mouths of the people that are going to enjoy it. So let's just use Google Analytics and see what people are doing. You can track how long people stay on your site. You can track the demographics of who they are. There's so many things. Where they came from, where they went to after they left. The whole path that they were on your site, are they on your, you know, then if you get them to your site, you get them to sign up for your newsletter, then that's even more information that you can, whether you can sell directly to that consumer or not. So a lot of it, you know, if you're a winer here in Italy, you're not going to be able to sell directly to that consumer in the U.S., but there are channels which you go through so that you can, and if you can still capture that relationship of them visiting your winery website, you can still keep track of them, engage with them, help them to learn more about your brand, your offering, 
so that then they can go buy it where it's possible to buy. A good metaphor for that, I think, I watched this whole thing develop when 19 Crimes came out with what I call an animated label recognition yes. app. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't identifying the wine so much, but when you hold your phone over it, some guy or woman uh, in an Irish accent who <laughs> was kicked out of England for you know, uh, stealing bread was sent over to Australia. It was called being transported. And I, I thought it was brilliant at the time, but it's also kind of a passive entertainment like TV. You're not engaging with it, right? It's animated. There's some movement going on there, but there's a limited script of what you're going to hear. And after the second or third time, which I heard it, it's not so interesting anymore. Each wine they came out with had a different story, but still in all, my point of view was, look, what's going to come next is some sort of interaction, some sort of engagement through that tool. So while a QR code is this kind of dumbed down version to connect things in some you know, electronic way. Just to get you to a website. Right. But at the end of the day, my point being is it's all about selling, that people might do their investigation through their phone, through recommendations from their friends on social media, through the millions of different ways that they access and acquire information online, uh, influenced by the, the phrase I use is to get other people to tell your story in their words to their friends. That's, to me, the definition of social media when we look at it from a marketing perspective. Now comes in tools like Vivino, which up until two years ago did not sell wine. They were a destination site for information, much like VinePair was and is, and like many other wine sites. They can make recommendations, they make connections. Now we're seeing Vivino growing, you know, a thousandfold, and it's all related to the sales thing. At the end of the day, people might want to know about wines, but the, the end result is, I want to buy it. Absolutely. So where does your thing fit in with the I want to buy it? Right. So in the where to buy it, we actually are also, we've just launched a marketplace uh, as well at wine4.me, wine4.me. And people can come to that site. They can move the flavor sliders. And we have a small collection of just really fantastic wineries that are innovative um, and make delicious wines. And if you're in the U.S., you can then purchase directly from those wineries and have it shipped to you. Now, we can also expand this to sell from other places because I am not taking inventory I'm not you know I put the consumer in contact with the seller of the wine to get the specific wine but we're engaging them to find out what do they like and then how can they get that wine easily and quickly Um, and then we share this data with the winery so the winery knows how long people are spending on the site what they're doing where they're going they own the consumer data and the purchase information we own the purchase information so that we can work together um, to build a better experience for them. And speaking of owning the data, kind of a segue to another subject that's dear to my heart because I'm deeply engaged in it now. One of the fundamental things that differentiates suppliers of direct-to-consumer, or I use the umbrella phrase, e-commerce, meaning some part of the transaction has taken place online, is who owns the data. So you take a, a supplier like Drizzly, which came to the world as a essentially a purchase, but they were a third-party facilitator. Mm-hmm. So people, would, mm-hmm. they would come into Drizzly. Drizzly would then send that name or that person to a store, which could then sell it to them and then deliver it in an hour. Drizzly is not in the wine business. They don't take ownership of the wine. They just deliver it. 
from the retailer's point of view, who's trying to survive in a world where uh, big companies like Total Wine are challenging them because of uh, very competitive prices, because of limitations on inventory and physical stores, and the flip of that being the long tail, and the thousands of wines that are legally available to be sold uh, in the United States, including the gazillions of Italian wines. How do you, how do you kind of close that loop and, it, and there are a number of tools that are we're seeing that retailers are using where they own the uh, data so they're able to then use the data. You were talking about e-commerce. I'll give you a practical example of it. There's a retailer in Los Angeles who was looking at his dashboard of information. So the system turned data, raw numbers, into insights, charts and graphs, and turn that charts and graphs into information and insight into what action can I take to capitalize on whatever these three or four disparate points of data inform me of. So he found one and he saw, look, here's a guy who purchased 55 times in the last year and a half. The average purchase price was $35. He spent $2,000, so probably the best customer of the store. He had never walked into the store physically. Right, the guy was just not a lurker and not a uh, a squatter or anything, but he was comfortable buying through that store because that store had access to and specialized in bourbons and rice and things that were kind of hard to get. Right. His network, it turns out, this one customer, he's the influencer everybody else looks up to to find out what's new and what's cool ah. in bourbon. He's not a blogger. Mm-hmm. He's not on this. It's his own internal, not formal in any you know, app or tool or anything else like that. But he's the definitive guy for knowing what's cool in bourbon and what's new. The only way that that would have been seen was if the the standard app on the tool that the the particular retailer was using was called City Hive, which feeds about 2,500 retailers in the U.S., enabled him to do that. You would not be able to get that kind of information or access from uh, Drizzle. And so as... The U.S.'s retailers are trying to stay alive in this onslaught of we still have the three-tier system and all the problems that are happening and e-commerce is challenging everything. How do you progress with something like that? And there are tools like this that are happening. So long story short, how does that integrate to what you're doing? And Do you see those two ways of communicating with consumers or providing information to consumers uh, colliding or... Um, Connecting. So I think you're actually talking about information to the to the Retail, sellers, to the yeah, not necessarily yeah. the consumer. So you know what we want to do is anyone that is using our technology, we want them to have an understanding of what people are doing on it, because the more that they know what people are doing on our technology and what choices they're making, the better choices they can offer that shopper in the future. So the more data that we can share, if we were working with a retailer, for example, and we're sharing what flavor data is being accessed, that helps them with their product selection. So they might say, okay, it looks like we're getting a lot of people that want to buy this flavor you know, profile. So what else can we add? Or another thing that, you know, I tried to use Drizzly Favor and Instacart one time, I'm in Texas and Favor is um, a delivery company that's there. And so I thought, all right, I want to get, I'm with the, I was with a friend and she liked a specific Sauvignon Blanc. And, I, and so I got on, I'm like, all right, I'd like to buy this Sauvignon Blanc and have it delivered at this house right now because we are, you know, we're out. We couldn't find that specific brand. And this is a very widely distributed brand. So it just killed me because I thought, gosh, if they had this flavor data that someone could very easily say, oh, you like this? 
here's something that you might, we don't have that, but we do have this, which is a similar flavor profile. Also, that retailer could have saved the information of my search for that flavor profile and then known, okay, if I'm the only one, well, maybe that's not that important. But if they start to see a lot of people requesting that, then they can see what other wines they need to bring in. That day, nobody made a sale. Nobody right. bought, you know, no one sold. Right. Not the one that we were doing. <laughs> so Amazon, I think, was one of the early uh, creators of this. If you like this, try this. Yeah. Which is kind of the way people think about wine. I had this really, really great wine yesterday. Probably can't remember the name, but it was, I think, a blue label. Right, right. And, and I want. I had a picture of a house. I want something like that. And oftentimes, it's well, why don't you just buy the one that you just had? Because we want to know what else is there, right? Not what this one was. Just it, it's an experiment. It's a journey. It's exploration, if you will. That's kind of a fundamental challenge. Well, it is because Amazon doesn't have flavor data. So there, if you, you know, you might, other people that bought this, bought that doesn't say anything about, was that purchase a gift for somebody else? Was it something that they had before? Like you have no idea why they bought that one and what the flavor profile is that could help you leap to another wine. So Amazon has tried the recommendation and Amazon is pretty darn good at the recommendation engine. I'm not going to say they're not, but when it comes to a flavor based product, they've not been able to crack it because it's a very different animal. It's completely different. So further to that point, in my experience, trying to really simplify down this connection with consumers, helping them, trying to understand from a, a supplier, manufacturer, importer perspective, how to, how to provide the information that consumers want. It's not formal market research, but it's lifetime experience. People want to know the answers to two questions when either they walk into a liquor store, wine store, they're in a restaurant, or they're searching for something online. What does it taste like? In words that I understand, and, you know, sauteed gooseberries is not in the lexicon. And the second, is it going to go with what I'm having for dinner tonight? Because most of the wine purchased is going to be consumed within 24 hours. That's exactly the problem that we are solving. And that's exactly why I built this technology. People, it might be that your waiter is 21 or 22 and has no clue. Or it might be that you have a sommelier who's using the sauteed gooseberries. Um, you might have a sommelier who's fantastic. And there are some really, really great beverage directors and psalms out there. But in most cases, in most times that you're dining out, you're not going to have a great beverage director because you're eating in a restaurant that's not at that price point, but you still want to have a lovely bottle or glass of wine. And this is a way that you can find that in a simple, no sautéed gooseberries, no bramble, no lychee, um, but things that people under, understand. Um, and they're able to figure out shorter, long finish, sweet to dry. You know, these things they're able to figure out. And people, I like a fruity wine. I don't like a fruity wine. It's been really interesting to see people use it that don't have the wine background and end up with exactly what they wanted. So one thing I've seen in the industry for over 35 years and obviously not unique is a flavor wheel. Mm -hmm. that a lot of people, not just in the wine industry, you know, with flavor wheels, they have kind of an outer rim and inner rim. You've got, you know, fruits, and then they talk about white fruits or blue fruits or black fruits or whatever it happens to be. And I've always found whenever I see something like that, even when they have those, you know, circular charts that you can spin around and match one thing up against, I'm not going to take out something like that when I'm at a no. restaurant. No. I mean, they're super fun when you're sitting at home for us because we're wine geeks, but no, not the regular. So... The description of the flavor 
is of little value other than something like citrusy normally means acid mm-hmm. acetic acid or something like that citric acid you've taken the the direction of using sensory scientists to consolidate the definitions and understanding amongst and across this group of people who are defining things for you. It's kind of like taking the flavor wheel a couple of leaps forward. Wow, I guess, yeah. I mean, what we did is we worked with them to figure out what do we need to measure? So you started from scratch. We started from scratch. You didn't start from the flavor wheel. No, no. We started from, and, and it was really interesting because the team that we had in place came from so many different perspectives of winemaking. And then the sensory scientists that said, okay, do we want to be chemically accurate? Do we want, like, where are we going with this? And I said, I want to try them both. Like, I want to see what was really going to give us the right recommendations. And I said, I don't want to, you know, first they're looking at at different grids. And I'm like, no, I don't want to use that grid because all these other methodologies help point to what's the vintage, what's the region, what's the grape type. And that's not, we only care about flavor. And you don't need to go as precise as all the things on the flavor wheel to get people to the wine they're going to enjoy. Because all those things are lovely, but most people when they're drinking wine are not picking up. Is it black fruit or is it yeah. red fruit? I still don't get tobacco. Is that, is that, yeah, right, right? Um, it took me a couple of years to figure out what stone fruit was. I'm like, yeah. oh, okay. That's okay. Don't you remember pomology? Yeah, no, I miss that. Totally miss that. So it, it, it's baffling to me that we're expecting regular consumers that have so many other things, so many other decisions to make in life. They just want to get a bottle of wine they're going to like, and we're going to make them study. No, let's just get them. That, that's more wine. of the pro- the fundamental problem with wine is we, we make it academic and we make it hard for people to just know, just drink it. Do you like it? Fun. You know, when I listen to music, I don't care what kind of wood the guitar was made out of. I don't <laughs> care where the songwriter is from. I, I just want to, you know, dance along. So another way people, entrepreneurs have, have addressed this is the concept of curated inventory or curated items that, that people can purchase. So there's one variation, which is wine clubs, New York Times uh-huh. wine club, Wall Street Journal wine club. And we talk as though, well, if, if you align your, if your palate aligns with the person who's buying for one particular club, that well, there isn't one particular club. I know how those wines are bought and sold. Right. And you can make a great, great, well, this is the way, that's not the way it works at all. Um, but what it does is it takes risk out of the equation because you have somebody else choosing for you, but you're limited to the inventory and the product um, that they have to sell. And most of the time, it's private label stuff that you could look up online and never find it. So you don't know. It, it's even worse. You don't know what I'm drinking. We can all go to whether it's Vivino, whether we go to Wine Searcher, and consumers do this too, not just the trade, to look at things. And one of the tools that we all use either uh, proactively or by default, is scores. Can you talk a little bit about scores and how they relate to flavor rather than I like, I don't like, or good and bad? Yeah, so the-, <laughs> the, the thing to me about scores is you've got to know what what does the score mean, right? How much, how much of that score is reserved for ageability of the wine? Now, if you're aging your wine, that's important. If you're not aging your wine, that's not important. How important, you know, what is that score measuring? Is that score measuring um, whether they think a retail, a regular consumer is going to enjoy it, or is it going over what is the quality of the wine? So 
or is it quality plus flavor or is it determining how accurate it is to what the variety of grape should taste like grown in such and such region and quite frankly so many people don't care a, a very very high selling pinot noir in the u.s does not have the varietal characteristic of what your typical pinot noir tastes like but it's it's a really big seller so people are buying wines based on and that's another reason why you can't just say oh you must like Chardonnay or Pinot right. Noir or Cabernet Sauvignon. There's so many different ways of making any given variety. Exactly. So scores can be great if you're trying to be impressive or if you align with somebody who's recording those scores, creating those scores, but it doesn't really say much about the flavor. And that's actually why I started working on this project is I was on vacation in Napa with my husband, two other couples, consumer, there to have fun. And of course, I thought, you know, in my four days in Napa, I was going to learn everything about wine. And I was sure of that. At the end of the second day, my husband and I were chatting and we said, do you feel like you know anything more about what you like in wine today than you did two days ago? No. And I'm like the questioner. Like I ask all the dumb questions so that I can learn something. And we said, you know, these are all wines that have high scores. They're well-made. They're pricey. But you like that one. She likes that one. I didn't like that one. We all like that one. What's the deal? And that's when we thought scores, medals, it's different than flavor. Often a proxy for which one should I buy, but explaining nothing. And it's, some, it's based on some one person or whoever created the scoring systems, perceptions like Robert Parker with the big bold reds from Australia 20 years ago. Um, I, I notice a lot of the wines that have become very popular, particularly coming from the United States West Coast, the level of sweetness is, is very off-putting for me, almost to the point that I don't drink domestic wines anymore because they're too sweet. And, and that much sweetness puts me off of the, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. The disappointment that somebody has when they just spend $80 in a restaurant or $40 to bring a bottle home to find out I suppose the wine's good, but I don't like it at all. This is a, a Sauvignon Blanc, and I don't like the citrus. Just strikes me as acid. People have different, yeah. you know, taste profiles for acid, super tasteful, sure. and all that kind of stuff. And it could be overwhelming. Isn't one of the things we want to do is to kind of minimize the errors oh, that people are making? Absolutely. Whether it's, I mean, you're and that example that you've got, you've wasted time, you've wasted money, you've wasted alcohol content, you've wasted calories on stuff that you're not going to enjoy. And it's not that the wine was bad, it's that you don't like it. But you're not going to remember what that was. I mean, some people take pictures of the label and maybe there's a way for them to retrieve that in the in the universe of things I want to remember the next time. But will you remember, I didn't like that one. Right. No, <laughs> no, you're not. No. And that's why you know, if we can if we can help get people into a bottle of wine that they're going to enjoy based on the flavor of the wine, and then we're also going to give them some words that they can use so that whenever they're out, um, out to dinner or at a grocery store or at a liquor shop or a wine store, and they can ask questions. And who do you see as your competitor? Ooh, that's a really good question. I do know that there's another company that uses um, flavor analysis by Chemistry. So that's a company called Tastery. But okay. but we use sensory science to do it. Communicating with consumers. We're on Clubhouse now, and uh, 
you know, for a long time, Clubhouse was only available on iPhones, and so I had to buy an iPhone, which I really didn't like at all. Stevie Kim made me do it there. I've said it. Okay, but you can take your pictures faster with yeah, your iPhone. Yeah, yeah, I get all that. So uh, Clubhouse has a tool. What What are other related apps correlate with what um, Wine for Me is doing or may support that or add value to it? It's been interesting because I've seen lots of talk about recommendation engines in the last probably three years. We've been working on this since 2010. We got real serious in 11. So, you know, we're looking at 10, 11 years of building a recommendation engine, tweaking the recommendation. I would love the opportunity to work with other applications and other websites. So I have found that rather than having our own app, it would be better for an, if we're integrated into a winery's website or into a retailer's website or something that we can help where people are going. Having people download yet another app or go to yet another website is not really the best way to go. I want to be where people are doing their shopping and guiding them into the right thing. You know, Vivino uh, Heine was saying earlier what, what his price point is, and, and he's got a more higher-end shopper there. I would love to help them with the, the mid-range and the and the starter shoppers, right? Let's, let's get them on e-commerce, too, buying some wine and giving them the confidence to do that. I think that we're a great complement to any site that is selling wine or to a winery who is suggesting wines for people to buy from another place even. Yeah, I, that's kind of exactly where I was going is that on its own, yours does not answer all of the questions that they ask. But if it can answer the questions that they ask that are decision critical ones at the right moment in time within the context of the screens that they see and the shopping journey on these things. And when we look at things like uh, Drizzly bought, I mean, Uber Eats Uber. bought Drizzly for 1.1. Just Uber, Uber. Because they own Uber Eats and everything. A uh, whole Uber empire. It was a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah. That was that was a nice okay. purchase. And a lot of the other uh, sites and, and tools and things like your work. Is there some, anybody knocking on your door with a check for, you know, I, I haven't I haven't um, accepted any of those checks at this point yet. No, no, I, I can't say that. I'm sorry for that. In the background, <laughs> it sounds like uh, they're cutting tile or something. We don't know what that is. Well, you know, it keeps things exciting. Anyway, sorry. Keep going. So, yeah, I feel like I, I know that where we would... Okay, I forgot where you were going. But the, the place that we would be better is for an integration with something else to help people find the wine that they want and then make that purchase. One of the things I think that we could really help um, would be different regions in, in banding together to keep people within a region or an area or some sort of collaboration that if you know that you like, you know, this wine and a consortium is trying to keep the shopper within that consortium, then let's get a bunch of wineries together, analyze their wines, have the data, and then have the click to where they can make that purchase of the wine so that they're staying within that consortium and then you're sharing the data amongst each other so that you can see what people are enjoying and then sending them to other wineries within that place or other wines within that. There are a couple of other apps that are in um, development, some uh, more, I mean, progress more than yours and some less, and, and people are choosing different tools that, that, that kind of drive them. One of them is uh, the monetization tool, whether it's... Uh, an ad auction type model, or it's a clip a ticket, get a, a, a commission effectively on purchases of wines. Do you have any comments on revenue models for 
Why well, I mean, again, I, I think that integrations are better than apps. Marketplaces are better than apps, using the web apps within those. The marketplace that we have, we charge marketing fees on sales to the winery. So when a sale is made, um, we are compensated for that sale by, by, putting, by facilitating the sale. But again, we don't touch the wine. We don't fulfill the order. We don't do anything along those lines. We found that the wineries that we want to work with are happy to do that. We're happy to work with them and I'll report back and let you know how it goes. So are you, do you, are, do you have a bias towards uh, domestic wineries versus um, exported or imported brands to the U.S.? Well, right now we've started with the domestic wines because it's just a whole lot easier. I mean, as you know, there's a lot, a lot in getting a wine across that ocean and then figuring out where it's being sold and that sort of thing. Does that mean I only want to work in the U.S.? Absolutely not. You know, I'd love to expand this into other countries and start there and then also work with their wines that are coming across. The situation is that we need to know where the wine is being sold and work with their partners as to where the wine is being sold so that we can make that link. But once we know that, we can make it happen. Oh, okay. So that reminds me of a story I like to tell. A buddy of mine told this story, but I've taken it upon myself. I get asked a lot, what is the best bottle of wine? Oh, you're the wine expert. You know, tell me what <laughs> right, I'm right. And My answer is pretty straightforward. It's the one I just sold. <laughs> And, and, and I think what you were just talking about, it, let's not lose sight of what we're trying to do here, okay? We're not, we're not trying to save the world. We're not trying to save, you know, autochthonous grape varieties that are about to die out. We're not trying to get people to drink 600 different varieties of Italian wines, and I think there are that many. Yeah. We're just trying to keep the commercial process flowing so that people can enjoy it and people can make a living. Um, when I do price structures for my clients, it really is amazing when you look at how much the winery puts at risk and invests and how little they get when you look at the retail price of a, a wine from the United States. Right, right, right. It's pretty sad. Uh, one, uh, one last question for you before we uh, sign off. It's a question I ask of all my broadcasts. What's a big takeaway uh, from this conversation, uh, of all the things that we talked about, is there any one thing that someone who's been listening, this is uh, with Amy Gross of Wine for Me, that they can take away and put to use immediately? And I'm thinking more about the, the trade. Well, I think I think you said, you know, the two questions people ask is, uh, you know, what's good, what's it taste like, and is it going to pair with that? Wineries can start answering that "what's it going to taste like" question with or without my technology. Of course, I would love to work with them. But start describing your wine in ways that people understand. Make it easy for them to find you based on taste and easy to stay with you and, uh, and enjoy more of your wine. Make it easy. Yeah. Uh, easy to say, hard to do. Right? <laughs> Listen, just start by describing the taste. Let's exactly. just start there. <laughs> Amy, thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Cheers. So that's all the time we have for today. I want to give a big shout out. Thank you to our guest, Amy Gross of Wine For Me, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Wine to Wine 2021 Clubhouse Marathon. This is Steve Ray. Thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast.
guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.